Hi, folks, and welcome once again to an episode of the Lex Rex Institute podcast. We've got an exciting program planned for you guys today. Today, we're going to be learning once again about. That's right, the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet and Socialist Republics. And today, we're actually going to be taking a deep dive into their constitution. Both of them, actually, the 1924 Constitution and the 1936 Constitution. Well, so, yeah, there, there was there was one after that, but people don't care about it, so we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> no, because I guess the, the 36 one lasted up through Brezhnev, I think. Yeah, right? so uh, up until 1977, so, which at that point, you know, you're practically at the end already, so... Right, I mean, you, you leave out the whole Reagan era that way, but you, you keep in most of the Cold War, at least. Yep. So uh, I guess, you know... Before we do that, we're going to give you a brief update about one of the big cases we've been working on. But let's uh, play our, our intro, and then we can do that. Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Anyway, as you said, we've got some updates in one of the cases that we've been working on. And when I say we, I, I mean you. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so a couple of our cases, actually. First one is uh, you may remember our lawsuit on behalf of those fifth grade girls from the Los Alamitos Unified School District who were sent to what was ostensibly a science camp, which turned out to be sort of an LGBTQ propaganda camp. Uh, that... We have two lawsuits on that one. One of them is sort of a Freedom of Information thing, Public Records Act-based lawsuit. That one's going on. Got a hearing on that next week. But the other one was recently filed, and uh, we recently opposed the district's demurrer on that. Their demurrer was totally grounds, <laughs> baseless in our opinion. Uh, that hearing on that's going to be next week, too, so we should have some more updates on that in the near future. Mm -hmm. uh, but our big update is going to be on Carrie Lake's case. So Carrie Lake, of course, the Republican candidate for governor of Arizona, who was recently, at least in terms of the official turnout, was defeated by Katie Hobbs, who was Secretary of State, as we know, person charged with administering elections. And lo and behold, there were tons of electoral irregularities, problems with compliance with state law. That went up on appeal all the way to the Arizona Supreme Court. And just last week, so last Wednesday, um, what day was that? That would have been March 22nd. We got a ruling from the Supreme Court saying that Carrie Lake does have a right to have her have her case heard at trial, that they cannot rule against her on the basis of latches, and that uh, basically examining whether or not the signature verification procedures they implemented were defective as a matter of law. Significantly, those are exactly the two issues the Lex Rex Institute <laughs> briefed in this case. So we won on all of the issues that we briefed and won on none of the issues that we didn't. <laughs> So I think it's safe to say that our amicus brief was fairly influential in that case. Uh, that's kind of a huge victory. Yeah. Probably the biggest victory on an election challenge that's been had in recent years. So, you know, some of the reporting on this has said that, oh, Carrie Lake loses on most of her issues. Yeah, but it kept the signature verification issue live. The Arizona election has seriously been thrown up in the air as a result of this ruling. They may be getting a new election in the next few months. At least that's our hope. That's what we're going to be fighting for at the trial court level. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't remember now offhand if it was the New York Times or the New Yorker, but the headline I saw the day 
following was Carrie Lake loses basically. And then, yeah, talked away one paragraph about how, well, you know, she will get a, a you know, a trial date for some of the issues, but. Oh, by the way, <laughs> there's a specific instruction saying the judge can't reject it for the reason that he did last mm-hmm. time. And that he has to consider the signature verification claim as a matter of law. Now, basically at this point, all we have to do is show that more ballots were affected by defects in signature verification than the margin of victory. Well, about 300,000 people submitted uh, mail-in ballots on election day alone, all of which are subject to signature verification in Maricopa County. The margin of victory was 17,000. It's going to be fairly easy for us to show. Yeah, that's a, man, that is a lot of write-in, uh, or excuse me, mail-in ballots. Um, well, that's because the part of this, the part of this election that, that's left out is because if, if you followed any news on this election, you probably heard about the long lines on election mm-hmm. day. You know, people having to wait three, four hours to vote. Uh, and sort of the, the spin on that that most, most groups have taken is, well, they didn't want to wait in line, so they went home. Yeah, well, a lot of those folks went home, filled out their mail-in ballot, came back in and dropped it off. So you know, our point is that the other defects in electoral procedure actually inflated the turnout of these mail-in ballots, yeah. which then inflated the you know, the problems caused by signature verification irregularities. Yep. So, and, you know, and, and there's there's very good reason for those safeguards because if you were somebody who was looking to corrupt an election through uh, mail-in ballots, which we know that's something that some people may have an interest in doing. Elections are fairly important. You know, we don't have any evidence to show that happened here, but certainly it's something that could happen. If you were going to do that, an inflated turnout of mail-in ballots would be a huge boon to you because it would allow you to disguise the fact that you'd inflated those numbers artificially. So... Yeah. Anyway, uh, we will, I'm sure, have something else to say about that case in the future. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's exciting. Uh, we worked with Ryan Heath of uh, of Heath Law PLLC over in Arizona on that. I was working on a pro hoc VJ basis, mm-hmm. but you know, I do want to give a shout out to him. He did a lot of good work on that too. Yep. Thank you, Ryan. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say about that? Or should we get into the... No, the I think Soviet, that pretty much wraps it up. The Soviet constitutions. Yeah, so a place where you couldn't challenge election outcomes, because that's a that's a liberty that we take for granted, right? Yeah. That, that we can challenge the stuff our government does. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's look at a system where that might be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, uh, I would say fewer avenues. <laughs> You were saying something, David. Uh, you know, I've I've forgotten, and uh, you know, this is a uh, maybe. This is uh, you know, peeling back the curtain a little bit. But uh, I will note that um, the Iron Curtain. No, uh, the the sort of the the movie magic curtain, or I guess podcast magic curtain. Um, you know, we've had some back and forth about the uh, the volume of of the Soviet national anthem as it shows up in the the final cut, and I just want to observe that. Um, you know, I don't know how it sounds on your end, but on my end, it's basically deafening when you play that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is, but it's a separate track, David. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, granted, granted, but it just it makes it seem like you're doing it specifically just to bother me. <laughs> 
that's just the way the program does it. It's for whatever reason, the audio All is right. uh, incredibly loud. Anyway, before... <laughs> Rest in peace, headphone wearers. Yeah, before we get into uh, the specifics, and we're going we're gonna to start with the 1924 Constitution, sometimes called the Lenin Constitution. We will then do the 1936 one, or the Stalin Constitution. But I just want to ask you, because you, um, you, know, you read these uh, more recently than I did, what, 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 yeah, what was back your, to uh... back. By the way, David, this is a lot of reading in preparation for the podcast. Usually it's stuff I've already read. This is the 1936 Constitution. This is in 12-point font. Mm-hmm. 36 pages? 34 pages. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not nothing. but uh... And that's the second. You, this one's about half as long, yeah. the first one that we read. But, you know, I, I think this one's kind of a reasonable length for a Constitution. The 1924 one was about 4,000 words. Yeah which is about the same as the U.S. Constitution, yeah. pre, pre-amendment. But, uh, and Sorry, go ahead. This one, I think, was like 8,000 or something. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Something like that, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to you know, start with, uh, what was your experience uh, reading <laughs> these documents? How did, it, how did it strike you? <sighs> I don't like them, David. <laughs> I don't like them at all. You know, I, I, <laughs> I thought I disliked those French constitutions mm-hmm. we did last summer, which if you haven't listened to that, Check out that episode. It's a good one. <laughs> but, you know, these, the one thing, the one <laughs> consolation with this 1924 constitution was that it didn't just go on with endless platitudes uh-huh. about how important liberty is or how important, the, well, I guess they wouldn't think that in the Soviet <laughs> Union, but how important the rights of the worker yeah, are, yeah. You know, how important it is to, to suppress the, the kulak and <laughs> keep down the bourgeoisie and so on and so forth. You know, it's the goal of this government is to make sure that everybody is protected and that private property is fairly administered. You know, you don't get a lot of that. Yep. And the one that uh, did Lenin, did he write it or was he just involved? You know, I'm not actually sure about the the personal authorship of either of them, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think. And his direction. Yeah, at yeah, the very yeah. Least. Safe to say that he definitely had his uh, his hands in it in some way or other. Yeah. Well, you don't get a lot of that in Lenin's constitution. To its great yeah. credit. Lo and behold, I turn to this 1936 one. <laughs> yeah. And what do I find? The very beginning, first page of the 1936 Constitution. It does exactly oh, yeah. that. It yeah. starts going on about how the the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics is a socialist, I'm sorry, is a socialist state of workers and peasants. And then it goes on, you know, it's the land deposits, waters, forests, mills are all to be run on the, at the, you know, for the interests of the people. Mm-hmm. Everything is to be owned collectively. The people are to rule this system. And then goes on to talk about, you know, when you get to the actual structure about how that is not the yeah. case at all. <laughs> but the people don't seem terribly involved. But, you know, I, I yeah, I didn't enjoy it, <laughs> to answer your question, David. I didn't think they were very good. Yeah. Um... It may surprise you to to hear that I agree with you about that. I did not find this uh, enjoyable reading. You know, it's 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 almost like we get our comeuppance from from when we criticized the French one because my criticism of the my probably my single biggest criticism of both of those French constitutions is structure was basically nowhere to be yeah. seen, right? I mean, they said like here's a legislative body. I guess it legislates. Mm-hmm. You know, say la vie, whatever. It's, <laughs> we're French. We don't have to think that through right. too much. Well, the Ruskies, they're not like that. <laughs> this is nothing but structure. It's, and then... And just what a structure. Uh, just And what a structure. Just committees within committees, bodies within bodies. Um, yeah, the bureaucratic apparatus is built into the constitutional structure. Yeah, uh, th- we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, that, that was one of my favorite sections is uh, 
you know, where, where the U.S. Constitution basically says the president can form a cabinet. This lists the cabinet department. Yeah. <laughs> That's a matter of fundamental law in the Soviet system. Yeah, it's. do we want to read that list? I don't know. Do we want to go through these point by point? I think we ought to, at least for a uh, bit. Point by point. Here we go. Here's the, here's the different cabinet. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, I didn't let you answer the question. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. So here, here's the commissioner. So the first one is the president of the Council of People's Commissars of the USSR. So that that's effectively the president of the commissars. And the different vice presidents, the different commissioners oh. are commissioners of the of the people for foreign affairs, commissioner of the people for the military and naval affairs, commissioner of the people for foreign commerce, commissioner of the people for ways of communication, commissioner of the people for postal and telegraphic service, commissioner of the people for the inspection of workers and peasants, <laughs> the president of the Supreme Council of National Economy, the commissioner of the people for labor, the commissioner of the people for finances, the commissioner of the people for supplies. Yeah. So there's like five different ones that are just economics <laughs> and like three different ones that are war and nothing Pretty else. much, yeah. Um... Yeah. Originally, we had state, the treasury, and yeah. war. Yeah, we got a lot more now. We, but... that, that's true, uh, but at least, at least we don't make it a matter of constitutional uh, importance that we have exactly those ones and no other ones. Um, yeah, I mean. Anyway, uh, but. Labor, finances, and supplies are all separate from each yeah. other. Anyway, let's uh, let, let's rewind a little bit though, because that that's later on in the in the Constitution. Let's get back to the beginning. Um, sure. And you know, I'm not sure all right. we're going to be able to go through this. So this is this is the 1924 yeah. Constitution. Context: This is like right when Lenin. Well, like not right when Lenin took power. This is actually like a year before Lenin dies. Yeah. But you know, this there's um. You know, there's this whole period we, we sort of uh, alluded very briefly in the last episode to the the start of the Russian Civil War uh, during sort of the the hottest parts of the fighting. The communists don't bother really establishing a constitution. They have a sort of provisional thing that they're partway working with. But 1924, now you know they well and. You, you can see why they were putting off writing it because they were not very good. Right, that, that's, that's fair. You know, it turns out in many ways they weren't great at fighting the Civil War either, although they did win in the end. But they're much worse at writing a constitution as it turns out. So mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't know how to govern, the best way of dealing with that is to have committees nested within <laughs> committees. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's not the, true. That's like the worst way of dealing with that. Yeah. Uh, I guess probably the first thing to note, though, about the actual structure, uh, as, as far as it goes, is that in theory, the Soviet Union, like the United States, is supposed to be a federation. Uh, you know, you have... Yeah. We usually, we often... The difference is it's, this says in its preamble, unite themselves into one federal yeah. state. We don't have right. that. We have 50 sovereign right. states. And, you know, as... as we tend to just use Soviet Union and Russia or communist Russia interchangeably. That's not technically true. Um, That's because they account for 51% of the electoral power. Uh, yeah. And, you know. A, a vote of Russia always overrides everybody. Pretty else. much. And uh, in sort of de facto, <laughs> like actual calling the shots, they basically have 100% of the power. Well, 51% will do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's if you control 51% of a company's stock. You own the company. Yeah. And well, you know, the, on paper, 
they have a, a slight balance to that because they do have a bicameral legislature. So they, they have the one that's proportionate to population and then they have the other one that's, you know, per subunit of which, you know, Russia is only one. But yeah, so let's, um, re- David can, can vouch for me on this, <laughs> but reading these constitutions, it's very difficult to know what their actual organs of government yes, are. Yes, absolutely. They, they, they will introduce something, describe all of the things that it does. And then 30 articles later explained <laughs> that that was the legislative body yeah. for the system. And uh, the, the other thing that complicates this too, and this drove me crazy, I'm not sure how you felt about it, is that they sometimes switch back and forth between using an acronym for something and like actually using the name of it. Constantly. Like, so, Constantly. So like, and it, in some instances, they use the acronym first. So it says something about like the CEC, and then you find out later that that, that stands for a Central Executive Committee. And then later than that, you find uh-huh. out what the Central Executive Committee is. Um, so here's what our constitution does. <laughs> Article one, section one, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Yeah. Here's a Soviet constitution. Chapter one, article one, the union of socialist Soviet republics through its supreme organs has the following powers. Mm-hmm. And then it lists all the powers of the central government of which there are 24. Yeah. And... <laughs> There's 13 powers of Congress in our Constitution. Yeah, it's worth noting, too, it's not clear to me what power isn't uh, assigned to the center in this Constitution. There's there's a lot going on here. Control of the national economy, control of the military, civil and criminal legislation, education. All foreign policy. Hygiene, which... You know, I think in the, that probably includes like medical stuff. Whether or not you have to brush but, your teeth. But yeah, hygiene yeah. Is, <laughs> is one of the things. Use of land. All laws regarding work. Yeah. It, it's it's just... <laughs> All laws regarding public instruction. Yeah. So education is centrally controlled. There's nothing, there's no facet of life that isn't touched by this. But just in case you were worried, the, <laughs> the sovereignty of the member republics is limited only in the matters indicated in the present constitution uh-huh. as coming within the competence of the union. Outside of these limits, each member of the Republic exerts its public powers independently. The USSR protects the rights of member Republics. What yeah, rights? It's, it's, it's not clear to me whatsoever what is left up to the, to these member Republics. So, so the closest analog to this section of our, in our constitution would be article one, section eight, which lists the powers of yeah. Congress. That's immediately followed by article one, section nine, which lists limitations on the powers of Congress. And there are more limitations than there are powers. (laughs) And uh, this doesn't have any limitations other than if we didn't list it here, the member republics can do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've talked before. If you include things like hygiene and and laws (laughs) regarding work, it doesn't even say interstate work. It's just work. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I was going to say, you know, we've talked probably ad nauseum at this point about how slippery some people choose to uh you know to, to to interpret the term commerce in our context but bearing in mind that this is a marxist state the word economy almost literally means everything is everything so you know, <laughs> and here we've got article article 1g to direct commerce with foreign countries and to direct the system of internal commerce it's funny because you can tell they actually read the u.s constitution yeah. when they were mm-hmm. writing this uh, because some, it's like, no, we're going to reject that interstate commerce mm-hmm. part. Just direct internal commerce. That's how we're going to yeah. put it. You know. Yeah, but it's just 
I can't imagine what wouldn't be under central control. To define the domains of industry and industrial enterprises that are of federal interest. Yeah. So to decide which facets of the economy are of federal interest, and then to conclude treaties of concession, both federal and in the name of member republics. So to make labor agreements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That's why that guy got to see Stalin after he made the the densest steel, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because that's Article 1. Article 1 section, I lost I think he's a G. H, Section H, H, as he gets to see Stalin when he (laughs) makes the densest steel. Although, bear in mind, this, uh, you know... And then get dating advice from Stalin. (laughs) That would have been under the the next constitution, to be fair, technically. Yeah, actually, I don't think that is a power. I don't think there's a power of the central government to give dating advice. No, I I don't think so. There's something. Unless uh, unless you count that as economics, because um, you might want to... You could also count it as yeah. hygiene. <laughs> yeah, you need to shower before you date, so it's hygiene. Uh, and yeah. you might, or or you know, they could be worried about like venereal disease yeah. and stuff. That's been used as a pretense to regulate that stuff before, even in America. So, and you know, you you might want to give your girlfriend flowers or something. That's both agriculture, use of land, and economics. So, oh, and it's certainly yeah. commerce, certainly internal yeah. commerce. <laughs> when you bought those, unless you didn't, well, I guess you you could have otherwise sold those flowers on. The open market. Yeah. So even if you didn't buy them. Okay. So yeah, it has power over basically everything. Mm-hmm. That's more important than knowing which organs exercise that power. Yep. Clearly. And you know, th- this was my um, first thought. Chapter two of the, of this constitution, you know, makes, goes out of its way to say, Oh, but don't worry. Member republics are allowed to freely withdraw. My question is... It's just, just in case that last section you read was a little bit frightening, mm-hmm. and for those of you whose eyebrows are now raised, you've got the freedom to withdraw. My question is, um, you've already told us that you control all the money and all the guns. So how free is that freedom, really? Um, you know, that that's... Well, and that's... That's the point that we really made with our our series on the French Constitution. And I think it's apropos again here. Simply saying stuff does not make it so. You you protect liberties and freedoms with structural safeguards. If there is nothing in place ensuring that member republics are able to leave unencumbered, they will not be able to do so, especially if they're economically productive members. Mm -hmm. Okay, so chapter three. Supreme organ of power of the USSR is the Congress of Soviets. Thank you. You've been using that <laughs> phrase a lot, so I'm glad that you've now defined it. And in the re- what is this even mean? in the recesses of the Congress of Soviets, the Central Executive Committee of the USSR, which is composed of the Federal Soviet and the Soviet of Nationalities. Okay, so a lot of undefined terms in this section. We've got mm-hmm. the Supreme organ of the USSR is the Congress of Soviets. So Congress of Soviets. And I think it probably means here the Congress of Soviets of the Soviet Union, right? Because those are different things. (laughs) So keep that in mind. Congress of Soviets and then Congress of Soviets of the Soviet Union. Uh, And then in the recesses of that, of the Congress of Soviets, you got the Central Executive Committee, or the CEC is probably what we'll call it. It's what this calls it some of the time, (laughs) but not all of the time. (laughs) And that is composed of the Federal Soviet and the Soviet of nationalities. So we've got four different kinds of Soviets at this point. 
We've, we've got the Congress of Soviets, the Congress of Soviets of the USSR, which isn't always called that. You have to infer from context. Uh, and then within that, Central Executive Committee, which is composed of a federal Soviet and a Soviet of nationalities. So what what is each of those, David? And how did you figure uh, out? With some outside help, for sure, because <laughs> this is not um, very intuitive, I would say. But... You probably could figure it out internally, but there'd be a lot of page flipping back yeah, and forth. But uh, so as we as we've um, mentioned before in previous episodes, a Soviet is just a council, and you know the Soviet Union, unsurprisingly, is littered with them. There's Soviets everywhere. It is a union yeah. of Soviets. <laughs> yeah, and it's they're, they're organized all the way from the top, you know, the, the Central Committee, all the way down to the very yeah. bottom. Um, where, you know, you may have a Soviet for your particular factory that gets together and decides how the factory is run, right. uh, but is also accountable to the orders delivered to it from the city's Soviet, which is accountable to the county's Soviet. So, counties, Soviet, counties, <laughs> Soviet, which is accountable to maybe the Republic yeah. Soviet, you know, up the, the chain of being. Yeah, the, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in their case, it's probably like administrative division and oblast and, you know, whatever, you know, other weird yeah. terms they've got. Um, other so, languages are strange. So as God, uh, <laughs> as God is to Aristotle, so is the Central Committee. To I'm the sure country. that's going to help so many of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's the top of the chain of being, yeah, right? Yeah. It's the, the the full effluvity of being, or whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so but the the main thing I think that's important here is that like. The people who end up in the CEC, which is sort of the equivalent of Congress. Central yeah, Executive yeah. Committee, yep. Those are picked by, like... So the Congress is not equivalent to Congress. No. <laughs> the Executive yes. Committee, so presumably the Executive, is going to be equivalent Except to Congress. Except that there's, you know, there's not a real distinction between legislative there's, and executive. There's a real uh-huh. muddy line between, <laughs> between an executive and a in a legislature in, in yeah. this constitution. The, the 1936 constitution to its credit does clarify. Yes. yes so, but anyway, so basically you have the Soviets from all of the member republics come together. That's one of those Congress terms that I've already forgotten. But like when you have all of them together, that's one of those things. That, um, that is the, that is the Congress yeah. of Soviets, but not the Congress of Soviets of the Soviet right. Union. <laughs> when they get together, the delegates they appoint comprise yeah. the Congress of Soviets of the Soviet yeah. Union. Um, and, yeah. you know, so then the the, uh, the two subsidiary bodies of the CEC or Central Executive Committee, one is based on population and the other is based on representing subunits, those member republics. So it's roughly, you know, modeled right. on something like the House of Reps and, and the Senate. It's the same sort of idea. At least in terms of representation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we get to that next. Mm-hmm. So that's, by the way, I'm sure that every single person listening to this is saying, I don't understand anything <laughs> you just explained. That's that's okay. We're going to try <laughs> to make it clear despite not knowing the basic structure because I don't think that they knew the basic and, structure, which is kind of how it... Yeah, uh, as it'll turn out, most of this structure doesn't really matter because for, for most of uh-huh. the time, a very small number of people are actually uh, in command of everything. <laughs> Yeah, like one yeah. guy, whether it's Lenin <laughs> or Stalin. Yes. Okay, so 
The Congress of Soviets of the USSR is composed of representatives of the urban Soviets and of the Soviets of the urban type on the basis <laughs> of one deputy per 25,000 electors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, in the U.S. Constitution, it's got to be at least 35,000. It's not just urban, it's everybody. Uh, but this goes on to say, and the representatives of the Congress of Soviets of the rural districts on the basis of one deputy per 125,000 inhabitants. Yeah. So if you live in a city, you get five times more reputa- uh, representation per person than if you live uh, uh-huh. out in the sticks. So that's that's cool. Um, which, interestingly, is the way that many people you talk to want to revise our constitution to work. Uh, you know, people who say they want to get rid of the Electoral College and have just a national popular vote. That's essentially what they're calling for, is greater urban representation, because the population centers are always going to have more yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that, that so, that's... Uh... Yeah, that's, they're, they're borrowing an element from the worst constitution ever. <laughs> Yeah, there, so there's that. That's that's the one sort of parallel. The other thing that people tend to complain about in the U.S. about our system is that the Senate, you know, disproportionately represents certain people. Um, what's funny is that it's that problem. If you see that as a problem, is even worse under this Constitution because, as we uh-huh. mentioned, the Russian part of the Soviet Union was more than half the population, uh, and. California, however big it may be, is not even close no, to half the population. It's like, what, uh, 15, 18%, something like that? Uh, some, somewhere in that zone, anyway. You know, I, I looked up just the who was in each time zone mm-hmm. at one point, and the Pacific time zone is like 11% of the population. They're really small, yeah. like, or even smaller than Central. Yeah. So, no, we can't be that big a proportion. No, uh, <laughs> it's, you know... California, easily the most populous state, but it also takes up roughly two thirds of the West Coast versus, you know, the East Coast has right. dozens of states in that same space. So anyway, it's it's because because Russia is <laughs> it's really the worst of, of all worlds that you're getting as far as the representation mechanics go. Uh huh. Yeah, the representation is just a mess. So it's a good thing that they won't be deciding a lot. <laughs> um <laughs> Because the Central Executive Committee can simply adjourn the Congress of Soviets due to what it deems extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. Gee, I wonder if that'll ever yeah, happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think this is... I wonder if this fledgling country that has just been created from nothing will ever have extraordinary circumstances. And, and that just emerged from, uh, what, like six six <laughs> yeah, years of, of, uh, of civil war after four years of World War One. <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh huh. You know, I I feel like I can say this as a general rule of thumb that I think we've learned at this point from uh, from the Articles of Confederation uh, in the French Constitution and, and now this one. Um, one thing to pay attention to is whether your founding document talks a lot about extraordinary circumstances or emergency powers, because uh-huh. if it does, that's that's probably an indication that someone's already scheming to use them. <laughs> Well, and that that really was, if there was a central takeaway from our series about the Roman mm-hmm. Republic and its fall into empire, that was yep. it. It was that the Roman constitution made specific provision for extraordinary circumstances, and that literally was its yep. downfall. Yeah. So any student of history, any student of republics, you know, governments organized in this fashion, 
should understand full well that you don't want to include provisions about emergency. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about uh, the Weimar Republic, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll get to that one yeah. of these days. But the reason you don't want to do that is there are going to be emergencies and people are going to abuse their powers during emergencies. Yeah. You don't want to put a legal stamp of, of validity on it when they do yeah. that. You want that to be an extra legal exercise of power and you want people fighting against it because you always want the government to stay within certain bounds or it's just going to go out of control, which is exactly what happens in the Soviet Union and exactly what happened in mm -hmm. Rome or anywhere they've ever done that. <laughs> France, you know, Germany. Yeah. I think Weimar Republic is probably the very best example yeah. of that because you know who came out of that one. Yeah, an Austrian guy. Um. <laughs> yeah, with a funny little mustache. <laughs> anyway. Um. Yeah, um, so and not that we're comparing. I guess we are comparing them to Hitler. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> we, we are pretty directly, yes. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> We actually should do a, a series on that one because that's that, I think that's the kind of constitution that most people that dislike ours would look at and say, yeah, we should have one like yeah. that. Ooh, yeah, but that one gets you. Yes, <laughs> yes it does. <laughs> <laughs> Big swing and a miss. Okay. Um, so a couple more things from chapter three. Oh, so as we just mentioned. The Central Committee can dismiss the Congress whenever it wants to, as long as it's deemed an emergency to be in effect. Not that that really matters, though, because the Executive Committee of the Union is convoked only once yearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this is, we talked about the idea of like committees within committees. This is where it gets real bad. Because um, it turns out that as much as the title Central Executive Committee sounds like it should be your primary executive um it isn't uh <laughs> that's reserved to the presidium <laughs> yep which is another arm of the central executive committee they meet yeah, all the time they're permanent but the actual mm -hmm. committee itself this one that has any kind of representative features to yep. it only meets once a mm -hmm. year so if this is your main legislative body and it has to pass off all laws that are created during that year in this one meeting. What is it, a week long, something like that? Yeah, I, I know that under the Stalin years, uh, traditionally, they, they got together for two weeks, you know, uh, two, two weeks. weeks out of the year. Um, I'm not quite sure. So in two weeks, you got to look over every law that's been proposed for the Soviet Union, which is all, basically all of yeah. your laws, because they're everything is, is a power retained by the federal government, and nothing is retained by the republics. Yeah. I think they're going to be voting on a lot of omnibus bills. What do you think? Most David? likely, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be a line item no. thing. I think it's going to be like, do you want to approve the new directives for detaining enemies of the state, along with the new agricultural quotas, along with this treaty with France? Yeah. And you get a yes or no vote on that whole yep. thing. And uh, I think probably the answer is going to be yes. I think the vote's yeah. usually going to mm -hmm. be yes. Yeah, I think it's going to be yes. Because. <laughs> That's my suspicion as well. Okay, so... <laughs> oh, and I guess just one one brief point. How does this work in the United States Constitution? Who's, who decides when Congress is going to meet, how often Congress is going to meet, and for how long Congress is going to meet? Do you have any idea, I David? I believe the answer is Congress does that. Congress decides mm -hmm. that. That's right. So it's not decided by a branch of government that is specifically vying against Congress for yeah. power. 
it, it's it's interesting because you, you know I think you were right earlier when you said that it seems pretty evident they had read the U.S. Constitution. Um, I'm curious. But did they understand the U.S. Constitution? <laughs> I'm curious if they... It's actually better than most of our members of Congress who haven't even read it, so I'll give them credit for that. I, I am curious, though, just because thinking about this part in particular, if they read any of the sort of the background, because um, I think our, we very deliberately vested Congress with that power because we remembered the English Civil War, uh-huh. where the problem was the king keeps dismissing Parliament and they can't get anything done. Um, and it seems like the Soviets were like, if, if they did look into that, they must have decided that sounded pretty good. Um. <laughs> no, I think they I think they decided, oh, it's really bad for a king to dismiss parliament. <laughs> but if a smaller executive committee appointed by a subset of the members of parliament were to dismiss parliament, that would be you, fine. You're, you're probably right there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Fundamentally different, <Yes>. David. <laughs> Because we have like six guys with unlimited power, not just one. <laughs> right. <laughs> but practically speaking, yeah. it's, yes. it's one. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to look at chapter, I think we just looked at chapter three. Chapter four is next. Yeah. It... So this is where the Presidium is actually introduced for the right. first time. We kind of jumped ahead of ourselves a bit in talking about what they we did, do. yeah, but... Oh boy, is this, uh, yeah, this is where my eyes definitely started to glaze over a little bit when I was reading this document. Oh, you didn't catch Article 16? Uh, Article 16. No, 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 I, I the did. Federal I so- did. Um, yeah, so what that one says is the Federal Soviet and the Soviet of Nationalities. So those are, remember, those are the two divisions of the CEC. Mm-hmm. I, I know it doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry <laughs> about it. Examine all decrees, codes, and acts that are presented to them by the Presidium of the CEC and by the Council of the People's Commissars of the USSR, by the different commissars of the people of the Union and by the CEC of the member of the republics, as well as those that owe their origin to the Federal Soviet and the Soviet of Nationality. So that's the extent to which they're a legislative body. And (laughs) they examine the laws that are brought to them that have already been made by other people whether it's by the Presidium or by all those cabinet secretaries working in Congress that we talked about earlier. Yeah, and I I assume that this is meant to work the way, the way you stated, basically, you know, that here's all the stuff, yay or nay, but it doesn't even actually... Put a stamp on it. doesn't actually it. even say that, though. <laughs> it actually... Yeah, I, I think because they didn't want themselves to be bound to the decision of whatever the... You know, if, if they actually did exercise their power, they didn't want it to be advisory. Yeah, this reminded me of... Um, one of the, I don't think this ever made it into one of the French constitutions that actually was put into effect. But one of the plans, I think we talked about this, had a tricameral structure where there was going to be one house that drafted legislation, another house that received that draft and debated it, and then a third house read the transcript of the debate and voted on whether they should approve the legislation. Um, that's a garbage yeah. system uh, but th- this one is is oddly kind of similar to that you know one group or actually two groups if you you know this the, the presidium and the commissars draft everything and then you just give it to somebody else and they look at it yeah and here we get an explicit article 26 makes it explicit between sessions of the CEC and the U- of the USSR that's the central executive mm-hmm. committee the supreme organ of power is the presidium of the USSR constituted by the CEC to the extent of 21 members including the presidium of federal soviet and the presidium of soviet of nationalities so finally like 12 articles later yeah. 
we get a definition of what the Presidium does. That's going to be your de facto power most of the time in the Soviet yeah. Union. Yeah, because I th- as I think we mentioned already, it is the only one of these bodies that we've talked about so far that is actually permanently in session. Uh, everything right. else gets called and dismissed, and in fact, by these people if they want to. <laughs> but they're, they're permanent. Look at this garbage. Article 23. In the case of disagreement between federal Soviet and the Soviet of nationalities, the question is transmitted to a compromise committee chosen by the two of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sometimes you actually, that's interesting. You actually do uh, sometimes end up with a tricameral structure here. Uh, if the two uh-huh. houses can't agree, they'll make a third house. <laughs> Generally, that'd be the function of the executive. But considering everybody is both executive and legislative, I guess we, we just can't need to make that. a new committee uh, whenever we need it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. In any sane system, in fact, I want to draw your attention to this. The entire point of bicameralism is that both houses have to agree on something for it to become yep. law. You don't do anything in the event of their disagreement. The law just doesn't become a law. Yep. Why bother being bicameral if you just appoint a third? <laughs> what a waste. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it does seem like they were trying to crib from other systems like they're like oh that seems like a good idea there but they just didn't understand the point of any of it okay i think we can probably turn to the supreme court at this yeah. point uh so we're jumping over basically just more stuff that just gets more and more granular about how each of these stupid committees works um <laughs> just further concentrating power into the hands of the presidium basically yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is almost dizzying and yes <laughs> but so we'll skip to the supreme court they do have mm-hmm. one And what does it do? Well, some of this is plagiarized from the U.S. Constitution because uh, it does things like um, gives the authentic interpretations of questions of federal legislation. I would never put it that way in our (laughs) constitutional context, but I think that's basically the power of judicial review as they understand it. Examines on request of the prosecutor of the Supreme Court of the USSR the decrees, decisions, and verdicts of the Supreme Courts of the member republic. So in other words, basically their attorney general or prosecutor general, decides when he doesn't like what a member of public has done and says, review this Mm -hmm. question, Supreme Court. That is a sort of heavy-handed... A lot of times... So generally, if the attorney general supports a petition for cert before the U.S. Supreme Court, Supreme Court will usually grant cert on that case because they know the federal government has a substantial stake in it. It's not enshrined in our Constitution, nor should it be, but that is generally how it works. Uh, to render decisions on the request of the CEC of the USSR as to the constitutionality of laws passed by the member republics. So similar thing, except for now Congress can ask them to review yep. laws. So they have jurisdiction over anything brought to them by any arm of the federal government, essentially. Yep. You know, you want you it's want nuts. to streamline the process of um, imposing federal rule on anyone who dare disagree. Uh, <laughs> right. Settle legal disputes between member republics. I'm fine with that one. No complaints yeah. there. And to examine the... Here's the one. This, this is, is the my big favorite one. one. <laughs> to examine the accusations brought before it of high officials against whom charges have been made relative to the performance of their duties. Mm-hmm. Any charge against a high official is brought before the Supreme Court. Yep. And it's not that they violated the law. Yep. It's that they haven't discharged their duty properly. Uh-huh. 
the official organ for show exactly. trials. Exactly. It's in their constitution. <laughs> if you want a show trial, they're the one that yeah, does it. For those of you who are even remotely familiar with, with Soviet history, I, I think you can guess um, this is probably going to be one of the more uh, prominent uses of this Supreme Court. There's not even any way you can argue against this. Like, there's no argument they don't have jurisdiction. If your client, I guess they, did they even have lawyers in their system? I guess they did. It, yeah. Yeah, but like, would everyone be either like a district attorney or a public defender? I guess, right? Like, that'd be. I guess how that would work. But like, imagine that. Imagine that you represent one of these high officials that's charged with, not a crime. I'm sorry, I almost yeah. said crime. Charged with not doing his job yes. properly. You can't even argue jurisdiction here. They just yep. have it. And um, it's also, you know, frankly, it's probably not going to be in your interest to mount an effective defense of your client in that case. You should probably just hang your head in shame and, and throw yourself upon the climate. Yeah, the court. I think that's the only <laughs> remotely prudent thing to do. Mm-hmm. Here, here, Article 47, the right to submit questions referred to in Article 43. So that's the one that we yep. just read talking about the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Um, to the Supreme Court of the USSR for examination belongs exclusively to the CEC of the USSR, to its presidium, to the prosecutor of the Supreme Courts of the member republics, and to the unified political administration of the state of the USSR. In other words, nothing can go before the Supreme Court unless the empowered entities in the federal government say that it yeah. can. There is no right to redress for grievances against the federal government whatsoever. Yeah. Not there. That's spelled out in their constitution. You cannot complain about what the feds do to you. You know, I, I guess in theory, they could agree, well, we shouldn't have done that to you. Um, so, well, yes, we'll let you bring that to the court. But um. Okay, you can play devil's advocate. You can compare this to, to our 11th Amendment, which which basically says that, that um, state, you can't sue a yep. state without that state's consent. But what do we do in America? We just sue the officer right. of that state. You know, I sue Gavin Newsom instead of suing California. Yep. You, you really think that Gavin Newsom is going to consent to me suing him? The way this is phrased, he has right. to do that. Yeah. It's not like I, our... I, yeah, I, 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 don't think, uh, I don't think anyone is ever going to actually do that. But, um, you know, on paper. <laughs> All right. So uh, anything else we want to cover in this one? Or should we turn to 1936 now? Uh, we, we already skipped ahead a little bit to the People's Commissars thing. But, I just, you know... I think it bears noting, though, as much as we've complained on this show about how our executive agencies functionally make law, this constitution literally empowers their equivalent of that, the people's commissars, to actually draft legislation. Uh, yeah. So that's fun. And isn't that like an arm of the NKVD or something? That, that, that was that unified public administration thing, which... Oh, right, which right, th right, that right, one. Yeah. The section on that in the actual constitution is so unclear to me. It basically just says like, we're, you know, we need to suppress counter-revolutionary tendencies or whatever. So we need a unified political administration. Uh, I didn't understand exactly what I was trying to say other than, you know, reading between the lines, actually the communist party is just going to run everything, which is functionally uh -huh. what that does. But yeah, so I, I looked into it and <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was an arm of, the NKVD, which later became the KGB, <laughs> um, is like the uh -huh. state. That's the, that's the secret that's police. The state security apparatus, or in other words, yes, <laughs> the secret police. So, uh huh, um, that's that's in their constitution. <laughs> is that basically every? Is that is that if if this if this Byzantine structure 
that we threw out here doesn't work. Don't worry, the secret police is actually yeah, in control. Yeah, because it, it like it mentions like. Oh, I wasn't worried at all. <laughs> it says like basically each level of the government down to like municipalities is going to have like this um, this like adjunct member of this unified political administration, which basically just means that there's going to be yeah, there's going to be a Fed um, watching everyone do everything all the time. Uh huh. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I guess it's good they told you. About uh-huh. it. We didn't do that here, right? When the when the NSA was doing that, they didn't tell anybody. Oh, oh, and then sorry, Edward Snowden published those documents. Yeah, sorry. Last note on this one before we go to the Stalin Constitution. In chapter ten of this one, <laughs> so does Stalin fix it? Or... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, in in a weird way, to some extent, but more importantly, no, he doesn't fix it. Um, but last last note on this one, chapter ten of the nineteen twenty four Constitution also spells out all of the commissars. So again, basically executive departments that the member republics have to have. So it says though the U.S. Constitution. That's right. That it, <laughs> it picked the cabinet for each of the, the member yeah, republics. So it, it's, a, it's oh, as if our constitution fantastic. says like, oh yeah, each state has to have a department of water and power, a department, <laughs> you know, like all this stuff. Um, you know what our constitution has to say on that? I think nothing, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that each that each state government will have a republican uh, yeah, form yeah, of yeah. government. Fair, fair enough. Full yeah, stop. Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, it does not spell what the... Here, they, there's actually a specific... There's provisions saying they have to bring their government into line with the, um, the provisions of this constitution. Yeah. So, and again, at this point, why have a federation if you're going to make every member of the federation do things exactly the same way? Because they can leave if they want oh, to. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's purely voluntary. Once they've given up all of their money for years and, uh, you know, ceded all military control to the center. Yeah. All right. So now let's look at this behemoth <laughs> document of a constitution. This is Stalin's improvements to Lenin's constitution. You know, I do want to give Papa Stalin credit where it's due. <laughs> I think he actually does improve on it in certain regards. This is much clearer, yeah, yeah. It if was, nothing else. It was at least easier to follow. And it gave less of an impression of having been drafted in committee um, and then just approved out the door. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we now have things like right at the top, I guess right after the, the series of platitudes <laughs> that they're not going to do, um, when you get into the actual structure of it, we have the jurisdiction of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics is represented by its highest organs of state and organs of authority covers, and then it, des- it describes the jurisdiction that it has, and then it jumps straight into... The sovereignty of the Union of Republics is limited only within the provisions set forth in Article 14 of the Constitution of the USSR. This is like many pages later after we list all the different republics. I'm sorry, Article um, 32. The legislative power of the USSR is exercised exclusively by the Supreme Soviet of the USSR. Yep. There, we have it. The legislative Love it. power. Clear. <laughs> and the next article. The Supreme Soviet of the USSR consists of two chambers, the Soviet of the Union and the Soviet of Nationalities, right up at the top, mm-hmm. right where you want mm-hmm. it. Way to go, Stalin. <laughs> you know, I think you could have done better on that not murdering 70 million people thing. But it's, as far as having a clearer constitution, got to give him credit. Yeah, where it's gold, gold star, um, at least as far as that goes. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. Fair enough. <laughs> it's because it's, it's, yeah, it's really not that hard of a task to just think um, I should probably explain what my terms mean before I use them. Yeah, but uh, as we, historically, as we've seen, very few people actually do manage to pass that hurdle. 
Most of the stuff in this constitution is the same as in the 1924 constitution. So we're going to talk about the differences at this point. So one of the differences is, well, here, all the different republics are actually noted. Yeah. So David. Do do you want me to read them? Because there's a lot. (laughs) No, I I just, I thought you had something to say about that. That's in your notes. I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What's interesting is it doesn't just say like, oh, it's the Russian Republic and the Ukrainian Republic. It actually names the the sort of administrative divisions of each of them um, as though in the U.S. Constitution, it said these are all the states and these are all their counties, which that's fun because um, mm-hmm. that adds probably. They have to keep them that way forever. Yeah. There's there's the solution to gerrymandering, David. <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, we're always talking. There's no great solution to gerrymandering. It, t- it turns out that Papa Stalin figured it as- out. You just tell them what all of their different municipal divisions are yeah. going to be. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I have to say that. So they have the power to relocate people, so it doesn't even fix it. I mean, they can't draw new district lines, but each of these republics could just say, you know, we're going to move all the people that vote one way into this apartment block here. It doesn't. It fixes yeah, nothing. And- I don't know why I'm even pointing that out. Obviously, it fixes nothing. It also <laughs> adds probably like 10 percent of the of the length of the Constitution, which I know you were so happy about how long this one was. Uh, but... yeah, it's great. Uh, and then it's, I, do we want to just breeze over those introductory sections where it talks about how um, socialist property in the USSR exists either in the form of state property or in the form of cooperative and collective farm property? Yeah, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on that because it is just has basically no practical meaning, but I think the one thing we should note is that... Article 3, for sure. Uh, which one's Article 3 again? I just want to okay. read this okay. in full. Go for it, then. Because I want I you am. to see if this remains true. In the USSR, all power belongs to the working people of the town and country, as represented by the Soviets of the working people's deputy. Not in a sense that I think most people would recognize. No, it doesn't. Um, oh, you know, in the same way that, uh, we talked about like the Rousseau's idea of the general will may not have anything to do with whether most people think something, whether people generally, yeah, want it. in, in that sense, like, you know, yeah. if you define the people to be like Stalin, for instance, then yes. Um, otherwise no, if you mean, well, it turns out that we do. <laughs> define it that way yeah <laughs> yeah i want to look at article 12 okay. as well in the ussr work mm-hmm. is a duty and a matter of honor for every able-bodied citizen in accordance with the principle he who does not work neither shall he eat that's from the Bible. yeah this was something i found interesting and you actually did some research on this when i brought this up but as far as i know we were never able to get to the bottom of whether any of the people who talked about it knew it was from the bible but like all of the the members of the Bolshevik in, in the Communist Party talked about this this phrase, but yeah, that that's that's from the New Testament actually, which it's interesting that it's uh-huh. in the Soviet Constitution. <laughs> yeah, I think it's taken grossly out of yes, context. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of goes without saying, uh-huh. I feel. And then uh, you know the principle of applied. I'm sorry, the principle applied in the USSR is that of socialism, from each according to his ability. To each according to him. Yeah. Work. So we've got Which is actually different from the Marx quotation. Is it? It was it was need in the Marx each according to his need. Oh, oh, quotation. you're right. I didn't even I don't think I actually even consciously read to the end of that sentence because I just assumed it was the same as uh 
you don't get what you need anymore. You get what you yeah, work for. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I did not notice that. Although, don't worry. In their Bill of Rights, there's a right to get food and whatnot, even if you don't yeah, work. Yeah, we'll, so. we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> later on. Um, the, it's the blatant contradiction. The, the one thing I did want to note, though, uh, just about all this sort of fluffy stuff at the beginning that, as, as we've said already, mostly doesn't have any actual concrete meaning, probably the major problem of Stalin's administration, and I mean that from his perspective, because you know, from everyone else's, there were lots of problems. Um, but from his point of view, the main problem he was trying to resolve was getting people to actually move to and stay on these collective farms that he had set up. So these like sort of massive agricultural yeah. combines. Uh, he tried to relocate all the peasants away from their homes and make them live in these sort of compounds, basically, and do all the farming. Um, so there's a lot of mention of collective farms. There's a lot of mention of uh, agriculture in this constitution. And uh, the first major difference, if we if if we're okay jumping to that as far as representation goes, um, is that he got rid of that disparity between urban and rural population being represented. Yeah, we don't need it anymore. Yeah. Uh, We've collectivized the rural population. Now they should be represented the same way as everybody yeah. else is, right? Yeah. Yeah, so other changes. So we got rid of that. Um, what else did we change? Uh, this isn't really a change, but it is a, a, a difference, which I thought uh, was worth pointing out. Um, chapter two of the Stalin Constitution, because the first one talked about the, the center having control over the national economy. This one goes out and spells out there is one budget centrally approved that decides how much money goes everywhere in the USSR, like down to village level. Um, right. So a lot of this is just a clarification yeah. of things that were very muddy in the first one. So, you know, in case in case there was any wiggle room in that one to think that there was some autonomous ability to direct mm -hmm. budgets of different republics. We now know that's right. not <laughs> Stalin gets to pick all of that. Yeah. Oh, another one. This one I found very interesting. So we talked before about how, like, in theory, you've got. The Guys, this is this is going to be a. Hayek's socialist calculation problem on steroids. <laughs> I mean, they're not even figuring it out at the local level. It's all figured out nationally. Yeah. Which th those of you... Anyway, go, go ahead. Those of you <laughs> interested in uh, the nitty-gritty of, of economics can, uh, can look that up, the socialist calculation problem. Um, but this one I, th I found very interesting. So we, we talked before about how everything just sort of gets narrower and narrower. You know, the CEC is a narrower circle of the, the general Soviets and, and so on and so forth. But now it, we talked about the, the Presidium is where the real sort of power is because they're always, you know, meeting. Always yeah. in session. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this constitution says that they're allowed to call, like they can not just dismiss the Soviets, they can call for new elections, which <laughs> normally... Whenever yeah, they want. Normally um, <laughs> in a parliamentary system like, like the UK where I am currently... Parliament can basically dismiss the prime minister and call for a new election of the prime minister. This is basically the opposite. The prime minister can be like, you know what? No, you need to pick a new parliament, basically. Um, there are fully one, two, three pages just listing the stuff the Presidium can veto yeah. and undo. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's... We're very, very clear. Just in case it looked like any other army of government had any yeah. power, mm -mm. no, it's the presidium mm -hmm. that gets the pick. It's the decider. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we, we clarify that thing about that committee that you form when the Congress of the Soviets can't agree with each other. Yeah. It goes to a conciliation commission. So now we have a name mm -hmm. for that. And if conciliation commission fails to arrive at an agreement or if its decision fails to satisfy one of the chambers, the question is considered for a second time by the chambers. Failing agreement between the two chambers, the Presidium of the Soviet Union of the USSR dissolves the Supreme Soviet of the USSR and orders new elections. Yep. So you'd better agree. <laughs> <laughs> or you're losing your no, job. Um, I'm jumping way wow. ahead here, but uh, chapter eight, uh, again, like, you know, m much as it spelled out the subdivisions of each member republic, it says now how you need to organize local government down to levels, I assume, below a village. I'm not sure, you know, these are Russian terms. Uh, but down to the level of stanitsas, villages, hamlets, kishloks, and owls. Um, <laughs> Even the kishloks. <laughs> yeah. Even the kishloks are centrally administered. Uh -huh. Did you look at the, did you look at article 78, the list of people's commissars in this one? I did. I didn't, uh, make notes of how it's different, but I did see that it, well, it there seems are more to be now. longer. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, now we now we have the food industry, fishing industry, meat and dairy produce industry, light industry, textile industry, timber industry, agricultural, state grain and livestock farms, finance, trade, internal affairs, state security, justice, public health, building materials industry, state control. Oh, it goes I'm, on. I'm very curious. Does food industry mean like only restaurants? Because then there were like three or four other ones that were like food products. It might mean like the final yeah, like product. Is this like so like like meat would be would be the the slaughterhouses and and the ranches, but food would be like what they sell in the yeah, grocery store, like the ground it, beef. It, it's it's very confusing. Building materials industry is a is an interesting one too. Building materials, like you'd think you might just have sort of like a, a you know mineral or like raw goods kind of category, but like. Specifically, one for like girders and concrete is very interesting, and it's separate from the timber yeah. industry. <laughs> yeah. All right, so th those are the commissariats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this one? I mean, it's. I guess noteworthy in both of these is we tend to talk about both Lenin and Stalin and say that they are dictators. Yeah. Neither of them ever abrogated these systems. And remarkably, as we obviously know, the power consolidated in Stalin's hands in the later years of the Soviet Union after, after Lenin's death. Um, he never threw out this system. No. This is the same essential system that was in place under Lenin. Yeah, it, there was no reason to throw it out because everyone knew, no matter what it said on paper, and frankly, what it said on paper wasn't very good, um, this was never... I think they followed what it said yeah, on paper. Yeah, and it, it was never going to be an impediment to one guy calling the shots. Like, it's, it's even right. if you, even if, you know, even if sort of like lower ranking people in this system wanted to, you know, pursue their rights to the fullest, there's very, there's not very much they can do. Uh, and in point of fact, no. very few of them even tried because, uh, there was always the very strong possibility that they could be arrested or killed. <laughs> um, right. But, uh, yeah. No, really. I mean, it was, it was not a small number that no. happened to. So here's the part they didn't follow. Chapter mm -hmm. 10, <laughs> fundamental rights and duties of citizens. Yeah. We, we, we've okay. talked before about, um, 
at least a couple of times about uh, Scalia's comments on on this constitution where he said, you know, if you're only interested in a bill of rights, the Soviet one sounds better than the, the American one. They had a yeah. much better bill of rights than we do. Yeah, and, and actually play okay. it right now. <laughs> but then I tell them, if, if you think that a bill of rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a bill of rights. Every president for life has a bill of rights. <laughs> The Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course. Just words on paper. What, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787, they didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So that, that's a Scalia yeah. quote. <laughs> so let's see what that much better Bill of Rights was. Yeah. Citizens of the USSR have the right to work, that is, are guaranteed the right to employment and payment for their work in accordance with its quantity and quality. Mm-hmm. Sounds like FDR's improved Bill of Rights. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, citizens of the USSR have the right to rest and leisure. Citizens of the USSR have the right to maintenance in old age and also in case of sickness and loss of capacity to work. Citizens of the USSR have the right to education. Mm-hmm. Women in the USSR are accorded equal rights with men in all spheres of economic, state, cultural, social, and political life. So it's not a patriarchy. You don't have to worry Interesting about that. Interesting that uh, the government is apparently in charge of social and cultural life in addition to everything else. But um... <clears throat> Yeah. Equality of rights of citizens in the USSR, irrespective of nationality or race. Yep. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is just great. we got all kinds of equality. All the basic necessities of life are guaranteed to us. What could go yep. wrong? <laughs> it, uh, so yeah, and you know, it, it, even beyond that, you know, freedom of conscience and uh, of worship. Uh, you know, inviolability of the homes of citizens and privacy of correspondence are protected <laughs> by law. Yeah, maybe so, protected by law. You know, that goes a step further than ours. Ours says no warrants shall issue except on probable cause. Mm-hmm. You have a right to be secure in your person's houses, papers, and effects. This goes further. The inviolability of the homes of citizens. Yep. So no one is ever going to break into your home in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, send put, you to put a back over your head and send you off to a labor camp. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's ever going to censor your mail. That definitely never happened. Yeah, uh-huh. freedom of speech and of the press uh, and of assembly, including the holding of mass meetings, freedom of street processions and demonstrations. This is, I think, this is one of the ones that Scalia specifically points out. Yeah, it's like they they go into even greater detail. Like you know, the, 
the freedom of assembly is is a constitutional right in the U.S., but like it doesn't say anything about specifically can you have a street procession, but here you can. No, it's spelled out yep. in detail exactly what you mm-hmm. can do. Did that ever happen? You know, uh, I think it did way after Stalin was dead and in the non-Russian parts of the USSR that were already like... Ooh, are you talking about Prague Spring? Uh, <laughs> that's... Because that didn't go so well, David. No, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about like right before the USSR broke up. <laughs> and I'm talking about... Okay. Oh, the, 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 the after the glass. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about like uh, you know Uzbekistan. Not so much. Uh, yeah, not so much Prague or Hungary or Poland yeah. or any of the places. Which, by the way, if, if you if you don't know how Prague Spring ended, it was in Russian tanks coming down the streets. To yeah. Suppress. And w- what makes it even worse in that <laughs> case is that technically, on in again, you know, the, this is a, a complete fiction, but technically speaking. Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, a lot of those uh, Eastern Bloc states weren't actually even supposed to be considered to be part of the USSR. But as soon as they start considering a change in policy, USSR tanks are in the streets. Well, see, David, that's the thing is being a part of the USSR just gets you representation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they still have power over yeah, you yeah, yeah. or not. You're uh, you know, I, <laughs> I can't think of a better term than puppet government. But yeah, that's basically <laughs> you know, what they yeah. are. So we're, we're at... We're a little bit over time, um, so I think any concluding thoughts on the Soviet Constitution? Uh, just uh, that, you know, I think we, we, we really didn't go into detail about why those uh, guaranteed rights were laughable, but hopefully people know enough about the history to know that without us having to spell it out. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, none... I mean, if, if you don't if you don't know Gulag Archipelago, I think we should start offering that on our website. Yeah, yeah, we, we talked about uh, that last time. That. So yeah, we, we should get that up there. Interestingly enough, the one about freedom of worship, we had a, a guest lecturer here at, at the University of Edinburgh uh, just a couple of weeks ago who was talking about um, the fact that the Soviets outlawed an entire church in the Ukraine um, during this period. So mm-hmm. um, I guess not so much. <laughs> On the freedom of worship. Well, David, that wasn't that wasn't that worship. Was probably something else that, was, that you do in a church. Yeah, that was religious <laughs> assembly or something. That's not protected. Yeah, you, in you here. have yeah, you have freedom of assembly and you have freedom of religion, but not together. Not 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 religious not assembly. No, <laughs> no. And actually, I mean, it is a big deal that our constitution does not protect freedom of worship. Freedom it of protects religion. the yeah. free exercise of yeah. religion. Free yeah. exercise yeah. of religion. You you are free to do the things that your religion dictates. Yeah, yeah. That's not a freedom of conscience no. clause. Anyway, all of this to say, there really is no substitute for making sure that your systems balance power, balance people's interests, and prevent you know the, the accumulation of all state power into one body, right. which is what these constitutions explicitly do, and don't make any right. bones about it. The fact that you don't call that guy a right. king... Doesn't matter at all. Doesn't make any difference in the end. <laughs> yeah. It's just the same thing. It's it. Yeah, monopolies yes. are bad, <laughs> right? Monopolies of anything are bad. Monopolies of the ability to exercise force against people are particularly bad. Unfortunately, you know, I'm not a Rothbardian. I'm, maybe we're going to lose our anarchist <laughs> followers. I don't know if we have any of those, but you know, I, I don't think that you can you can split up. Um, law enforcement and uh, rule of law in, in the same jurisdiction. I think there does have to be a state that presides over it. 
And if there is a state, you need to make sure it's one that doesn't hand all of its power to one entity yeah. within that mm -hmm. state. Our constitution splits up those powers very, very effectively. And I think you said it after our French, our French uh, constitution series, U.S. Constitution, except no imitators, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And especially not the Soviet Constitution. This is the yeah, worst. And, uh, you know, it's it's not the ultimate important factor, but it, we've talked about it before. It bears repeating. How many constitutions in history have lasted anywhere close to the amount of time the U.S. one has? And, you know, we yeah, we have fights about it. People are divided in their opinion of it, but it keeps working. Like we have stayed together. Yeah. We haven't. And you, you yeah. know, you, you can say like, oh, well, they don't follow it. So it's still in place, but it's just a, you know, a parchment guarantee at this point. But that's not true. We still have two houses of Congress. We still elect them the way the Constitution calls for us to do that. We still have a president. We still elect him the way the Constitution calls for us to do that. We still have a Supreme Court that still exercises the same basic functions that are spelled out in the Constitution. Now, because we're very spoiled mm -hmm. and because fidelity to the Constitution matters, we will absolutely complain when it steps one toe out of line. Yeah. But I want to put that in context when it yeah. happens. You know, I said we, we will fight everybody at Lex Rex Institute will fight vigilantly and, you know, often vehemently for a strict letter of the law adherence to that constitution. But the degree of adherence to it is on a scale unparalleled in human yeah. history. And the reason we want to fight for it is because we believe the system works. Um, you know, it's not just right. because we think they're nice ideas. Anyway, do we? All right. So, do we have time for Captain Kangaroo? We have gone. Yeah, let's okay. do one of them. Why not? Um, I will. Let's see. Where's our intro theme? There we go. We'll gather around, everybody, young and old, everybody who's interested in eccentricities of law throughout the world and throughout the ages. Welcome to Captain Kangaroo Court. Anyway, all right. Since we're only going to do one. Uh, I'll share with you one of the um, things that ended up on the cutting floor from last time where I, I presented you. I thought we'd just do something in the Soviet Union. Like, oh, I guess it's too easy there. <laughs> well, I, did, I didn't prepare for that either. Um, but uh, last time I, ha I had you sort of uh, evaluate a number of different lawsuits that people brought. Uh, here's one that ended up on the cutting yeah. floor. Uh, Texas man sues his date for texting during Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Uh, and, oh, uh, what, what I, what I like the most about this, uh, is that this guy for $17 and 31 price cents. of the ticket, uh, cause he paid, you know, he bought, he bought this person, her ticket. What is it? An, an, a theory of implied contract or what's good? <laughs> what's the you know, basis I, of the lawsuit I, I here? guess that that's probably the underlying, uh, assumption here. The contract was I would buy you a ticket and your consideration paid to me was paying attention. Seems that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, shockingly uh, for, you know, avid readers of, of USA Today, they don't go into a great detail on the actual legal issues. <laughs> but I'll just say, like, this is why people are afraid of online dating. Yeah, uh, I think that's a that's a pretty fair, uh, fair statement. Like your date may text while you're at a movie. Mm -hmm. Um. That was a, that was a reversal, David, because you thought I was going to say that they might sue you. Yeah. But <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I would say that the suing is is worse than the, yeah, the text. Probably, for sure. probably. Uh, <laughs> according to him, 
Uh, he said uh, she activated her phone at least 10 to 20 times in 15 minutes to read and send text messages. That is pretty annoying, <laughs> but I don't know if I'd sue somebody over it. Um, I hate it when people do that. <laughs> she says, oh, my God, this is crazy, said 35-year-old who requested that her name not be used. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> She said, oh yeah, this is what I wanted to get to. Uh, She told the Statesman, which uh, was the local paper, uh, that she only texted on her phone two or three times. Uh, She says, I had my phone low and I wasn't bothering anybody, she said. Really? Really? I mean, why can't she just say, yeah, I was texting people. That's not something you should sue somebody over. (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair point. Her her complaint seems to be... Like, honestly, the fact that she's making excuses here makes me a lot more sympathetic to the plaintiff. (laughs) It is... Like, no, it's annoying when you text people during movies. Everybody hates It is that. interesting, yeah, that rather than be like, this is a completely absurd thing he's doing, she's like, I wasn't texting that much. <laughs> yeah, what I was doing was fine, and he should have been fine with it. <laughs> Seriously? I mean, your first impulse is to make excuse. Okay. I'd so, uh... Getting too invested anyway, in this. Anyway, <laughs> it, it, it is interesting because, um... And, you know, she she says that uh, he was making her feel uncomfortable even before any of this went down, which, based on the fact that he's he's bringing the suit, I, that seems plausible to me. You know, obviously I wasn't there and can't, yeah, uh, seems can't right. comment. I, but, I buy that. Um, you know, neither of them, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right, though. Neither of them come out looking great in this situation. But uh, I, I, I have to say, I don't really think um, it's a good use of the court's time uh, to... to well, it's probably a small claims court. In fact, almost certainly small yeah. claims court, which means no attorneys are no. allowed. Um, and they usually get through their calendar pretty quickly. But yeah, that's kind of a waste of judicial resources, yeah. I'd say. Anyway, that, that's all. I, that's all I had on that one. Uh, there, there is a reason. I, I don't. I don't know what his theory. I don't know what his theory is. Like, I don't know what he was deprived of. Whether or not it's a valid case, it's certainly an absurd case to bring. But whether or not there's any, merit I think you're to probably it, right. I can't that, really yeah, answer. He, 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 you know, reading between the lines, because I, I don't think he has any idea how to express it uh, appropriately either. But uh, reading between the lines, I think he probably is saying there's an implied contract that I've, you know, I've purchased this for you. You owe me, you know, at least your attention during this time. Yeah, see, I, I would say that attention is not something that is yeah. paid to the person that bought you a ticket. I don't think that is a benefit to the obligee. Um, I, I don't think that's consideration. There's no contract yeah. there. I would say that the ticket was a gratuitous gift. Uh, he doesn't have any legal recourse. He shouldn't be bringing this. Yeah, up. and that's uh, that's what that's another thing she said. I'm not sure if you caught that. Uh, it was right down at the end of the article. Uh, she said he first like just texted her and said like pay me back for it, and she was like no you. Oh, tried to settle yeah. it out of court. That's you bought reasonable. me the you bought me the <laughs> ticket. Uh, I don't owe you anything. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree with her on that, unless he was very explicit in his language and giving it. But even then, I don't think there's any consideration. I don't think he derives any benefit, at least no contractually valid benefit. Yeah, that that sounds right. You know, I won't pretend (laughs) that I that I know, but uh, I'll 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 buy what you're selling on that. All right. Well, that's all for this week's folks. Thank you for listening to Captain Kangaroo Court. We hope you do join us again next week for the weird, wacky, and wonderful world of. Captain Kangaroo. All right. And uh, we hope that you'll also stick around for our best segment, which is our end of episode disclaimers. Um, but, uh, all right. Thanks for listening, thank folks. And we'll see you all again a couple yeah. weeks from now. We'll let you know the, the topic on our social media on Facebook when we have decided yep. what it will be. Uh, we don't have that yet. So <laughs> that's something you'll have to look yeah. forward to. See ya. Bye, everybody. 
Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.